If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listener patrons like you. Today's episode is also sponsored by Made Trade, one of the very few consciously curated online stores that I direct my friends and family to for everything from home goods to clothing, accessories, and holiday gifts. Made Trade makes a really easy-to-shop ethically made and earth-minded products, and every purchase directly supports small businesses, independent makers, as well as artists and communities from around the globe that are working to preserve their own biocultural diversity and craftsmanship. They're also a woman-owned family-run company that offsets carbon emissions from all shipping and donates a percentage of every purchase to the nonprofit Fibershed, whose founder, Rebecca Burgess, you might recall having been a repeat guest on this show, talking about their work revitalizing local and regenerative textile systems. So if you're looking for ethically made, eco-conscious, and fair trade gifts for loved ones or yourself this holiday season, I highly recommend checking out Made Trade and you can get 10% off your first order at madetrade.com slash green dreamer. That's M-A-D-E-T-R-A-D-E dot com slash green dreamer. We are trying to recreate that movement of the bison and the birds across our fields. We never till, you know, our motto is carbon down, carbon down, carbon down. But I find it wildly inefficient, or I should say not inefficient, I find it wildly inadequate to measure our success by the amount of carbon in the soil. That was Jesse McDougall, a regenerative farmer at Studio Hill. He's an accredited professional with the Savory Institute, serves on the advisory board for Soil for Climate, and was the author of the first regenerative agriculture legislation. He's also a father, dial twister, public speaker, and author. You know how discussions on climate change tend to focus on carbon emissions, leading to people focusing on solutions addressing that piece, such as carbon markets, carbon offsetting, or carbon farming? Well, Jesse thinks these sorts of measurements focused on carbon emissions or drawdown alone are too limiting and aren't helpful indicators of holistic land restoration and soil health. So we'll be discussing why that is. We'll also talk about his experience writing up the first legislation in support of regenerative agriculture in the state of Vermont and how that went and more. So Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in.
Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I became a farmer because I fell in love with a girl who had a farm. I grew up in the mountains of New Hampshire where there wasn't much of a farming culture. Every All our food came in on trucks, and I was very much of that drive-through culture, you know, fast food. Didn't think anything about nutrition or soil or where food came from at all. And in college, I went to college for writing in Boston and just kind of fell into web development and ended up after college starting a company doing small town nonprofit web development with my fiance at the time, Caroline. And in 2011, her aunt Edie, a, a woman who was a pillar of the community in southern Vermont and a pilot and a successful businesswoman and horse trainer and one of the most generous humans on earth and had managed the family farm for 40 years, got sick. And she was diagnosed with glioblastoma, a really aggressive brain cancer. And Caroline, or Callie is her nickname. You'll hear me refer to her as Callie. Callie and I moved down to help out as much as we could around the farm and with the cancer. And Edie passed a year later in 2012. And Callie and her sister were the only two in the fourth generation of the farming family and her sister preferred the city. And so it came down to me and Callie or nobody. Um, And so we kind of looked at each other for half a second and raised our hands and asked for a shot. And so with very little farming experience on her side and none on my side, Mm -hmm. we made a go of it. And, And the first decision we made was to stop spraying these chemicals on the land. It had been farmed conventionally for 40 years, um, using all the usual suspects of tillage and pesticides and herbicides and heavy equipment. And a decision we thought was great at the time, but ended up being pretty naive, though I wouldn't make any other decision looking back, was to stop spraying everything and and just go cold turkey on all the chemicals because we were so scared of the connection between the cancer and the, and the chemicals and what we expected for the lush green farm to remain lush and green did not happen. We figured we stopped spraying poisons and things get healthier. But as soon as we stopped spraying everything across our, our hundred acres of hayfield got much worse and had trouble growing anything. And so it was a real moment of panic for us. You know, we thought we might be the generation that messed up big and put the farm in peril and potentially lost it and all that, which is every generational farming Mm. family's nightmare. So in retrospect, would you say that was because the farm had become so reliant on these agrochemical inputs that when you suddenly removed the farm from all of these inputs, the farm hadn't really reestablished its own regenerative capacity to heal. So 
it kind of was just left left barren with nothing. That's exactly right. So what we thought we had done, we thought the decision we made created that situation of the bare fields. But what we realized later after learning more about this was that we had simply removed the crutch that revealed the situation that had been true for decades, that the ecosystem was dead in the soil and that by removing the crutch, we could see that, you know, and the fields were actually incapable of growing grass on their own. So these lush green fields that we'd always known here were products of the industrial management system that had had been going on. So we lost crops for two years and didn't quite know what to do. Um, we went around and collected all the manure piles in the county and spread them back on the fields trying to rebuild organic matter. But that very quickly showed us that it wasn't going to be enough. And everything we spread quickly oxidized back up to the atmosphere. Mm. So it just disappeared pretty quickly. And it was um, it was kind of a fluke. In 2013, I was bouncing my baby boy, Angus, on my knee at 3 in the morning. And I had TED Talks running on the laptop uh, because they were boring and they lulled him to sleep. And mm. just then uh, – um, Alan Savory's TED Talk had been released that week and they were featuring it. And it came on and I wasn't listening. And then he started describing the bare soil and the soil capping and the stocky plants and the washouts and the ruts and the bare rock that he was seeing in his work fighting to reverse desertification in Africa. And it caught my attention because that's exactly what we were seeing in the fields behind the house in Vermont in what you know one of the most humid climates on the planet so that's what led me to the idea that the soil had been dead for all that time or led us to it and that we should think about recreating the system the natural systems of the land and though we were very skeptical you know as as anybody raised in this culture would have been because of the villainization of livestock and we're at this funny point in history where we believe animals are bad for nature and poisons are good for food, you know, and that's kind of how we, the mindset we were coming out of. So we started small skeptically with chickens and, and moved them on Joel Salatin style coops across the worst patches of ground on the farm and moved them every 12 hours. And slowly but surely the grass started coming back as soon as the soil got the cover it needed and the fertilizer it needed and the protection from the elements. All those seeds were, were dormant in the seed bank could germinate and and grow. And so we had this green mohawk of grass coming down the worst patch of ground on the farm. And we were thrilled. We started doing backflips and stuff, like just so so thrilled that we'd found a way forward, you know, when all of our neighbor farmers and all of the organic farmers and all the people that we talked to couldn't tell us how to manage a hundred acres without chemicals at the time. But, you know, through the brilliance of the internet and then follow up YouTube videos, and then we bought every book we could, we started learning from the people who were doing this around the world, finding and learning from them. And, Eight years later, now we have a booming flock of sheep and chickens and and 
turkeys in alternating years and an abundant ecosystem that is is bringing in more wildlife and biodiversity than I ever thought was possible here. And and so we're seeing more and more varied species of birds every year. We're seeing uh, bugs, worms, critters of all types. And even two weeks ago, we, we discovered an endangered species on the farm, a timber rattlesnake that is endangered in this area or endangered in the globe. So the, the transformation in just eight years from, I don't want to say dead ecosystem, but um, struggling ecosystem certainly to abundant ecosystem and, and creating habitats that endangered species can return to has been the, uh, you know, the honor of a lifetime. And we, I just stumbled into it. So I'm grateful to the universe for that. A lot of people will have heard by now that our agricultural sector contributes a lot to our carbon emissions, a significant amount of which come from livestock farming. So this kind of touches on the sentiment that you had in the very beginning when you guys were skeptical. So I think it's easy to hear that, make quick generalizations based on these uh, numbers and findings from research and on a piece of paper and conclude that our food system necessarily causes harm. So then the question is just how do we reduce our negative impacts and have this sort of reductionist mindset? So you've been working on what's also called carbon farming, which proves that there's a possibility for agriculture to actually be beneficial to our ecosystems and also help to perhaps reverse climate change. So can you expand upon this based on whatever you feel most call to share as these topics come up oh absolutely and i appreciate the question the industrial agriculture system is destructive to the planet and nobody is gonna i'm not gonna argue that point at all and the animal agriculture industrial agriculture system we have now is even more destructive than the you know the vegetable agriculture system because the animal agriculture system is based on the plant <laughs> agricultural system so it's like a double whammy because we're not feeding our cows for example grass or feeding them row cropped corn so those are destructive systems piled on top of one another and what you what we've created in the animal agriculture system specifically is unnatural animals exhibiting unnatural behaviors in unnatural environments. So that's, and what I mean by that is unnatural animals, meaning we've bred animals off of their natural diets, right? So you teach kindergartners cows eat grass and horses eat grass and sheep eat grass. And the truth is that's not, that's largely not true anymore. They eat corn, they eat grain, they eat these high octane diets because we've bred them to do so. They're not exhibiting natural behaviors in these systems because they're crowded into barns. And when you crowd them into barns, the manure piles up. And while the manure is great on a green and growing field when it's spread out naturally by animals, it's an environmental disaster when it's piled up and put in a lagoon or in a pit where that concentration of nutrients is is devastating to the you know ecosystem around it when it leaches out which it almost invariably does what what we need to create and what we've created here and what other wonderful farmers around the globe have is natural animals acting naturally in natural environments right so 
that's when nature rebounds. You know, if you build an unnatural system, <laughs> nature is going to break. But if we have, if we are able to rebuild these natural systems, then nature can flourish. So, the, for example, the grass grazer relationship is essential for the carbon sequestration to take place in the grasslands. So, in the Midwest of the U.S., for example, before European style management moved in and and changed everything. The Great Plains were open. They were roamed by millions of bison for millions of years. And the grass would pull the carbon out of the atmosphere as it grew. The bison would move into an area of lush green grass, eat that carbon, convert it to manure, drop it to the soil, and stomp it down into the soil along with a whole bunch of grass creating millions of acres of a sheet composting system where carbon was moved down moved down moved down and that's how you got 20 plus feet of topsoil rich dark carbon rich topsoil in the midwest that became the breadbasket of the world obviously we have broken the grass grazer relationship by moving by slaughtering the bison and then moving cows into the barns and row cropping that land and converting that carbon sequestering system and landscape into a carbon emitting landscape through tillage where every time you turn the soil over that carbon that is supposed to be locked in the soil is turned over in organic matter and rotting manure or leaves or residue exposed to the sun, the wind, the rain, and that carbon molecule breaks off of the carbohydrate chain bonds with the o2 in the atmosphere and floats away and that's oxidation that is how we that is why the agricultural sector is contributing hugely to climate change at the moment and why we're losing so much topsoil you know you talk about topsoil loss a lot of it does wash away but a lot of it just oxidizes back to the atmosphere and you're left with sand and you're left with rock that we then have to farm industrially by importing water, importing fertility, and importing uh, the carbon. So you import water, nutrients, and carbon into that system of industrial farming to keep it going. And the problem is it's fragile, right? So one hiccup in that chain, and all of a sudden that ecological destruction rears its head, and you end up with dust bowl-like sandstorms and and species extinction and what have you. So I know you've personally witnessed these regenerative changes on your land. I'm wondering if you've ever done research to actually measure the carbon levels in your soil to actually relay this concept into reality. Well, here's the thing. I'm kind of a big picture guy. We do do soil testing and we measure the or, the organic matter content of the soil and we've been able to bring that up from less than a percent to three or four percent in some places in in on the farm in a short amount of time and we're very proud of that that is proving that carbon is going down and staying down you know in our system we are trying to recreate that movement of the bison and the birds across our fields we never till you know our motto is carbon down carbon down carbon down mm. but I find it wildly inefficient, or I should say not inefficient, I find it wildly inadequate 
to measure our success by the amount of carbon in the soil. First of all, carbon once put in the soil, because you're you're acting in a very complex system with millions of variables, may leave the soil on its own. Um, the earth does burp. There are dry years where more carbon comes out and wet years where more carbon goes in. So if we're trying to establish a metric for success of this farming model it should not be the content of an ecosystem right Mm -hmm. because that is up and down and all over the map and hard to control so when we talk about payments for ecosystem services or carbon markets there's been a lot of talk about that for years and it's never materialized because we're focusing too narrowly on carbon in the soil as though it's a industrial system as though we can put one block of carbon underground and leave it there and assume it's done these are fluid systems if we look at this if we if we take a different perspective and look at it in geological time right so things are always moving up and out and farmer sometimes has very little control over it does that sort of put into question the whole idea of carbon markets do you think i do i do i have no i have zero I think they'll come up with something. It'll be a weird workaround, and I don't think it's going to be great. What I would rather see is, and I joke about this when I go up to the state house in Vermont, I say, don't count the carbon, count the butterflies. Mm. If the if the ecosystem is proving improving, the animals will come back to it. So what I'd like to see is a measurement of the function of the ecosystem, not the contents of the ecosystem. So is your water penetrating when it hits the ground or is it running off? Is your biodiversity increasing year over year? Uh, is your solar capture increasing year over year? And is your are your minerals cycling through the soil every year? Those things can show distinct improvement trends year over year while the carbon goes all over the map, right? right. So. And if the ecosystem is functioning in those four ways, the ecosystem will be regenerating. It will be regenerating natural resources in the in the ground, and it will be regenerating natural systems in the ground. And the wildlife will start coming back to it because there's stronger, healthier, tastier food there for them, right? So I like to take a big picture look at how we're doing, and if... And my indicator of success is based on the wildlife that I see returning to this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Because if we're creating a system that is appealing to natural creatures that have free will, then we're succeeding in recreating nature and, and making a more resilient world.
It seems that part of the problem with conventional agriculture was how it really centered on the chemistry of farming. So if we're trying to do things differently, it doesn't really make sense to similarly focus on the chemistry of regenerative agriculture, as Mm. opposed to shifting the focus to more of a systems approach and more of the biology of the landscape. And again, like you mentioned, using biodiversity and the land's own regenerative capacities to create life as indicators of success. Oh, absolutely. And and what you're seeing now is um, in conventional ag, and I don't vilify anybody, I, I applaud and salute farmers of all stripes, but what you're seeing in conventional ag is a negative feedback loop, right? So farmers have to, farmers are businesses, right? And they have to produce a reliable product on a reliable schedule while working in an unreliable environment with, uh, you know, with more factors than they can control. So the conventional approach is to eliminate as many natural factors as you can in that environment by taking everything down to gravel and sand and then importing everything you need to grow your corn, for example. And then you can kind of create a reliable product, right? But the problem there is, of course, the product is nutritionally deficient because it only contains what you truck in. It's it's very expensive to do carbon-wise because of all the trucking and the tilling and everything that you have to import. And it is a huge drain on water resources because the ground is open all the time or most of the time. Um, And you see a lot of farmers doing commodity crops with row covers and crop covering and stuff like that, which is great. So everybody wants to do the right thing. On the other hand, if you look at this biologically, like you were saying, it's a positive feedback loop where when I bring sheep into the farm, um, when I first brought sheep into the farm, I kind of did the numbers. I'm like, okay, with this number of sheep, I can probably, given the amount of grass I produce, build this flock up to be a hundred sheep say but then everywhere the sheep went because they were exhibiting their natural behavior in a natural environment everything got stronger and came back more abundantly more um, nutritionally dense and more often so the amount of grass i produced on the land just getting kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and larger because the sheep were fulfilling their role in the ecosystem that they had evolved to to thrive under along with the grass. So the number of sheep that we could carry on the land went through the roof because the grass production went through the roof. So that was a positive feedback loop. So where in the conventional system, it gets more and more and more expensive to grow every year because every time you spray your field with poisons it becomes less able to produce the next year and the same with fertilizers whereas in our system the more animals we bring in the more abundant the land becomes which means the more animals we can bring in which means the more abundant the land becomes and it's just a it's just a difference in management it's Mm -hmm. just it's not a difference in there's not huge equipment changes you need to make there's not huge loans you have to take out. It's just a question of management. 
What's really inspired me about regenerative agriculture is that it sort of blurs the line between the farm and the wild in that mm. it invites back and acts as habitats for wildlife. So I'm curious what it was like for you to see wildlife return to your land and how do you today balance their symbiotic and synergistic coexistence with your farmland, with your work as the farmer, sort of having to intervene and manage some parts of this land? Well, there's this great old story that I love and appreciate on that question. It's kind of an allegory, but there are two farmers, two neighboring farmers, and they both plant corn one afternoon. And a few weeks down the road, one farmer's cornfield has been picked bare by the crows landing and digging the, the kernels out. And the neighboring farmer has knee-high corn growing and so the farmer with no corn goes over to his neighbor and says how do you do it how do you keep the crows from eating your corn and then the other farmer says i feed them so what he's been doing is planting his corn but then leaving big piles of corn around the edges of the field and making it so easy for the crows to get that corn that they don't dig in his field and he gets his corn so that's kind of my philosophy on it is I'm trying to make the the pie bigger for everything here. I'm trying to attract as much life to the farm as I can because the more life that's here, the stronger everything and more abundant everything becomes and there's more food here for everybody. So we, you know, when we graze the animals through the field, we think you know, half for the land and half for the sheep. So we move them out much sooner than most farmers would out of that paddock. So we move them, in our case, every day. And one of the highlights of doing this, I'll never forget, I was working and working and working to create a natural environment, a natural system to raise our turkeys in, where they could roost at night and scratch all day and, and be in the woods and out of the woods and everything. And one morning I'm sitting there drinking my coffee in the truck and watching the turkeys and out of the woods walks this gaggle of 30 turkeys to follow the turkey wagon that I had been creating around the field. And I, I thought, well, that's it. That I got it right. If turkeys choose to be in that system, then you know you've created a great, a great system for your birds. You create a system where they can fulfill the role that they were, that they evolved to fill. So, it's just a thrill for me every time a new species appears on the farm. And because the whole landscape is becoming more abundant, I don't worry about them encroaching on my enterprises yet. If anything, I try to view my enterprises as making the environment for the wildlife even more appealing. Well, I think a lot of times we focus our mental energy on fighting what we don't want. So I'd love for you to take a moment here to envision the future of what regenerative food systems could look like and how that might positively impact other issues tied to agriculture. My vision for the future, and, and, and I can tell you exactly what it is because we're building it right now, is a decentralized distributed food system based on regenerative ag small family farms, um, electric distribution to cities, and renewable energy powered so that there are no bottlenecks. So when coronavirus 20 hits, 
and one plant shuts down, there are 40 others that can fill the void and make up the difference. And you have local control of local food systems so that if everything goes belly up, we can still eat. So to that end, uh, my farm studio, Hill, has teamed up with a investment capital firm called Embata Capital and a solar installation company called Grassroots Solar to create a company called Regenerative Food Network Incorporated. We are focusing immediate, uh, uh, in the immediate term on the northeastern U.S. from upstate New York through New England. And we are building and have been for the last year and a half a system, a food system based on 20 or more rural food centers that will have in them USDA meat and poultry processing, creameries, organic tanneries, non-polluting, vegetable processing, egg production or egg processing, certified kitchens, uh, visitor centers, and distribution. Then through our electric truck network, we're going to bring food from these aggregation points that are local to rural areas so farmers don't have a hard time getting to them, down to the six distribution hubs in the cities where we deliver the food out direct to consumer or direct to chefs and restaurants so that we can get carbon sequestering ecosystems restoring food from the rural areas to the cities in carbon neutral vehicles so that we can give the folks in the city who can't go out and plant trees without getting arrested or can't manage livestock holistically without getting arrested um, or you know what have you can't participate directly in the climate fight a way to do that by choosing carbon sequestering food so our goal is not to replace anybody in the food system, but to work with everybody in the food system and then build in, fill in the gaps where they exist, right? So the infrastructure for farming in this area has been moving out of this area or going under for the last several decades, and we are rebuilding it because we see how important that is for to keep landscapes open, first of all, and farmable Whereas if all these dairies go under, they will become second homes for the 1% from the cities and can't be regenerated or they'll become neighborhoods and we won't get the land back. So um, they're all in peril and they're all at risk right now. So that's what we've been building. And the first USDA plant comes online next month and we've already purchased the tannery and that we're going to duplicate around the region. And the first electric trucks start arriving this summer. So it's all been very exciting, especially because we started working on this long before COVID hit. And as soon as COVID did, everybody started talking about the need for this. And we were like, but hey, here we're doing, <laughs> just give us three weeks. And so that's been enormously gratifying. And, a, you know, again, a fluke of the universe that we just happened to start when we did. Um, but grateful to be in the position that we're in now. But our hope for this system is that we can reverse the Walmart effect where you can spend a dollar in a circle around town only so many times before somebody brings it to Walmart and it's put on a truck and sent to the cities. What we want to do is build a collaborative farmer network that brings their food to the 
food center and we send it to the cities and bring home as much money as possible. That's why we're going direct to consumer, which is the number one highest profit margin market and direct to chef, which is number two. And we're not going to initially deal with grocery stores or other things. So we want to cut out the middlemen, you know, like the food system as we have it now works great for the middlemen and terribly for the eater and terribly for the farmer. And we're trying to flip that on its head so that we're as direct from farmer to eater as possible. The second thing we hope to accomplish is to increase the amount of uh, food, local food consumed in the area up to 30% so that we're, we're doing a better job getting local food distributed out to local people and more affordable to local people because it's what we're experiencing now in across rural America in that there are food deserts popping up in farming communities. It is absolutely baffling in the most fertile places on earth. We are experiencing shortages of food. It's, it's astonishing when you think about it, but that's what's happening because the food that is grown is quickly put on a truck and sent away and, or it's it's priced out of the ability for people to buy locally, right? So um, we want to do a better job distributing local food out locally um, to, to combat the the food deserts, but also to improve the nutrition that is dispersed in the area. You know, as I said earlier, conventionally grown food is nutritionally deficient because it contains three things and that's the nitrogen phosphorus and potassium that you put down on the field and that is those are the three macronutrients that you need to make a tomato look like a tomato and corn look like corn and an apple look like an apple but the micronutrients the hundreds of micronutrients that are usually supplied by a healthy soil ecosystem are not there they're they're gone and that's why i like to say an apple a day keeps the doctor away is no longer true uh there have been studies that show you need to eat 25 apples today to get the nutritional value of one apple grown in 1950 so even when we think we're eating well and eating right the food is just not serving us well right but if we are able to start regenerating these ecosystems and growing food in healthy active soil we get a whole flood of nutritional food out into the local communities that are starving for it and to the cities that are starving for it but probably don't know it yet so a lot of times people say you know for your health eat whole foods but this really proves that whole foods doesn't equal whole foods and we have to look we have to unveil what's going on behind the scenes to understand how things are grown. And the ideal picture, of course, is everything that you just mentioned. So thank you so much for sharing that vision and crucially for you leading this work and walking the talk. Before we wrap up, we'd like to give our listeners some concrete steps to take to help them translate what we discuss here into actions in their own lives. So what are some of your calls to action for our listener, whatever you feel most pertinent to share here? It is vitally important right now that people know their farmer. And one of the, it's easier for people in rural communities to find an organic regenerative farm, subscribe to their CSA, go do the pickups or, or get the, you know, do the deliveries to the house. But what COVID has really pushed forward quickly is been 
online ordering direct from farms. So folks in the cities can, and suburbs, can now find a farm that will deliver to the city much more easily than they could even a year ago. Um, and it's often using UPS or FedEx or something like that, but there are farms doing monthly subscriptions. There are farms doing weekly drops. Um, it is easier than ever for people to know their farmer. You know your dentist. <laughs> you know your mechanic. You know your doctor. It is time for us all to know our farmers as well so that we can reward the people who are working hard to bring food to you so that we are not sending our money to corporations that take advantage of populations around the world and that you know what you're feeding yourself and your kids. So I'd say that's step one. Step two is to start banging on giant corporations through through Twitter or through Facebook or through contact forms and say, you know, have you considered sourcing your products from regenerative ranchers or farmers? As soon as the public starts demanding that corporations consider the regeneration of Earth in their products, those corporations will start doing it. And there are some good examples of companies that are doing it. I know Patagonia has been doing it for a long time and started Patagonia Provisions to get into the food space with 100% regenerative food. Um, Eileen Fisher, the fashion company, is sourcing a lot of wool from regenerative spaces now, which is great for farmers. You know, the, to, if the wool market came back, we could regenerate a lot of land if there was a profitable way to raise wool. And I know Timberland Boots has started sourcing leather from regenerative farms. Um, so that is where the shift will happen if we can get public opinion to start demanding that the organizations that manage all of these resources make changes. Well, we are coming to a close here, but Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more from Jesse and stay updated with his regenerative work, I know they also host farm stays through their Airbnb as well. If you're ever in Vermont and want to check out their farm, you can head to studiohill.farm to learn more. And they're also on Instagram at studiohillvt and studiohillvt underscore Jesse. Jesse, we appreciate your time so much uh, sharing your story and learnings with us here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Don't stop dreaming. The, the future you dream of is possible. This concludes today's episode. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show and find our independent platform valuable, please do come join our Patreon if you can, starting at just a tip of $2 at greendreamer.com support. Today's song feature is Politician Man by Adrian Sutherland. And I also want to thank our audio producer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. Break me off a piece someday. Whoa.